Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Oh man, does it feel good to be back on the road again. I gotta say it's been, I would say maybe 18 months since my family and I were able to indulge in that very traditional American pastime of getting out on the road and loading up on beef jerky and unhealthy snacks and uh, yeah, just setting one's sights on the horizon. But we were able to do that just this past week uh, when we headed due west of Houston, where we're holed up here down in the Lone Star State and blasted out towards San Antonio which is a good three hours if you take I-10 due west, but we chose to take a few of the smaller little routes, um, 290 and a few of the other little little country laneways that go by the banks of the Little Colorado River. Uh, We went by Bartok, I think, Brenham, a few other German sounding towns along the way. Uh, stopped in at Columbus on the way back in Becky's Cafe and Diner and uh, just hit a few few of the little spots along the way, which was really just delightful. And if you haven't been to San Antonio itself, uh, of course, it's a, a wonderfully historic city with um, obviously being the site of the Alamo. And for those of you who are interested in any uh, history regarding the Texas Revolution and uh, all that frontiersmanship of the 19th century, uh, you'll be very well rewarded to uh, take a quick trip down to San Antonio for the weekend. We stayed in the Manger Hotel, which is right by the Alamo there. Um, fairly moderately priced, I'd say. Not, uh, not one of the swanky hotels, but certainly one with a lot of character and a real, a real history to the place. The, uh, the Manger Saloon down in the lobby, um, was allegedly frequented by none other than Davy Crockett himself, who used the saloon to rally his famous Rough Riders for some of the expeditions there. So if you're into that kind of stuff, yeah, Sam Houston, Jim Bowie, you know, the whole uh, the whole Alamo story is is a pretty fascinating one. And uh, certainly the Manger Hotel is a good spot to take in all those stories. But in any case, we weren't there only for play. Of course, we took our, uh, our little mobile studio along with us, a little podcast studio, and I was able to catch up through the wonders of modern technology with one of my good friends, one of my favorite readers, favorite writers, favorite thinkers, really, Mr. Christopher Mayer. Long-time listeners of this show will know Chris as the co-founder and the investment director of the Woodlock House Family Capital Fund, uh, which he founded with Bill Bonner. And uh, it's always a delight to catch up with Chris, whatever the subject happens to be. In this case, 
we talked, of course, the headlines, the big three, rising inflation, rising interest rates, and the specter of rising taxation out on the horizon. And we also uh, just kind of shot the breeze with, uh, you know, subjects ranging from the 17-year cycle of, uh, of the cicadas, which are out in full force up in the Northeast, where Chris is right now, to things like the coffee can portfolio and why it sometimes pays to do less rather than more when it comes to tinkering with an overly actively managed portfolio. As always, Chris had some fantastic insights and, uh, and it's really just great to catch up with him. So I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Chris Mayer as much as I enjoyed recording it for you earlier this week. So please sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Chris up next. Hello, Mr. Mayer. Hello, Joel. How are you doing? Good, sir. I'm very, very well. Where are you? Uh, yeah. Texas? I am in Texas. Yep. The, the sun has risen, the sun has set, and I ain't out of Texas yet, is, is the saying, I think. Yeah. We're, um, we're actually on the road where we blasted out west of Houston yesterday and took some little, um, not interstates, but the, the, the little windy kind of roads that lead by the, the banks of the little Colorado River and <laughs> some sl- sleepy little old German towns. Uh, along the way. It's kind of cool. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. And we're staying in a hotel. Yeah, well, you know, it's summer here. Things are, you know, getting hot. And uh, I got my summer haircut and uh, <laughs> I'm already browning up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I was thinking about you when we, uh, when I chose this hotel, because as a fellow hotel connoisseur, uh, as you are, and the man who recommended uh, Hotel Bemelman's uh, to me. Uh, this hotel is one of those historic old hotels right next to the Alamo. Uh, it's called the Manger oh. Hotel. And uh, they've nice. got a cool old bar downstairs, kind of like a saloon, like the Davy. I think it's called the Davy Crockett Saloon. But, yeah, there's all the all the slogans sort of, you know, That's painted cool. over everywhere. You all can yeah. go to hell and I'll go to I Texas. I do like to stay in those old hotels, that's for sure. There you go. You remember yeah. when we were in Vienna, we stayed in a very nice historic old hotel as well. Yeah. That, the, uh, that was fun. I don't remember it, but uh, that's a historic <laughs> I do. I remember. St- I, bought I, remember. The, uh, I bought the book about it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. I mentioned that in, uh, in one of our recent, uh, an intro to one of our last podcasts, because I remember you, we just uh, checked in the day before and I think we had like a cocktail hour or something. And by the time I'd gotten down to the cocktail hour, you're already read up on all your history of the hotel and you're regaling other, <laughs> other guests with the, the, the famous past patrons and, and whatnot. But right. yeah, this, this is a cool old place. I like staying in these, um, in these hotels rather than the big chains because I don't know, it feels they right. feel kind of, um, kind of clinical or something. That's right. Although sometimes the old, the old chains acquire the old historic hotels, in which case that's okay. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like the Metropole and some of those are part of larger hotel chains, but they're still wonderful places to stay. A lot of history. But yeah, I know what you mean. Of course, the brand new franchise Marriotts or whatever they are, then they're nothing special. Yeah. So um, 
on on the subject of of hotels and people getting back on the road and and that kind of stuff um uh, are things returning to something like normalcy uh, up your way do, do you detect oh yeah i think so um you know you look at grocery stores for example you don't have to wear a mask anymore although it's interesting most people are still wearing them mm. people are out and about and yeah you don't see as many masks around and so i'd say things are getting kind of back to normal we had a we went to a party at someone's house there was 10 people that was the first time i had done something like that in like a year and a half <laughs> that yeah. many people inside because it was raining so we were <laughs> oh inside yeah that's that what that's one we've of the done big, outside uh, ones which are kind of different you know one's outside and yeah. Even dead of winter, I remember us all, you know, huddling, huddle, huddling around a fire just so we could get <laughs> together with people. But yeah, I yeah, think things are returning back to normal. Yeah, definitely traffic has returned. So that's that's a negative. I mean, I you kind of got used to driving, being able to drive around without any seeing too many cars, but now traffic is back in full force. Yeah. Yeah, commutes and air traffic too. I think uh, uh, we, I, I think I just noticed the other day that uh, the throughput numbers, which I know you watch, were getting back to kind of the 2 million um, per day, yep. which is a big, uh, that was kind of pre-pandemic, I think, what were they like, two and a half million or something like that right. during the week? And then to the low, they got down below 100,000. Yeah, it's one of the more shocking things I've seen. And then for a long time, it was, you know, stuck at just in the hundreds of thousands. And even even in the beginning of this year, we were only at around we weren't getting to a million million passengers a day consistently. We we're hitting it now and then. But most days, even in January this year, we're still below a million people, whereas you know, in 2019, you were over two million a day easy. <laughs> so it's devastating. Yeah. travel so now we're back to the point now where every day is well over a million i mean we're averaging you know millions six million eight and the last i think two of the last three days was over two so now it's i think i'm going to probably ease off following this because it's largely not quite i mean still a big i mean normal times if the number of throughput travelers went from 2.6 million a day let's say to 2 million it'd be, you'd think something serious was happening <laughs> right right bad was happening. <laughs> But it's coming up from such a low base, and it's somewhat normal that eh, now it's like, eh, okay, right. I guess I'll have right. to stop following this statistic. <laughs> <laughs> so it's less, less shocking. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, after such a after such a massive massive downturn. So I was thinking about that the other day. We went to uh, the Galleria Mall in in uh, Houston there, and I was counting the number of people that were lined up out the front of like the designer stores. And part of this is because, you know, they have only a limited number of people that they'll let in the store at any given time. But it seemed, even taking that into account, it seemed pretty unusual to me to see like 20, 30, 40 people lined up out the front of like Gucci or Louis Vuitton or whatever. I'm thinking, man, these people have a lot of pent up demand. They've been sitting on that, you know, they've had nothing to spend their money on except Amazon Prime oh, yeah. deliveries and Netflix for the last year. And now here they are, they're all at the mall. They're snaking around the, you know, the arcade to buy $5,000 bags. And it's, it's pretty incredible. Oh yeah. In fact, I had a call with my investors 
um, I think it was in April, maybe it was, maybe it was May, but anyway, uh, one of the charts I had was the savings rate by country. So this is a global phenomenon that consumers have saved significantly more than, uh, normal. And, you know, all these countries are well, well, well above their savings rates. So that's, that's another interesting thing. As we open up and things come out, people have money to, to spend, um, We'll see what happens. I guess the big, uh, the big sort of headline news with that is something else that you mentioned in those charts on your on your investor call, which is you know the big three: rising inflation, rising taxes, and rising uh, interest rates. Um, you put an asterisk next to those, which I thought was interesting. Do you want to tell us just explain what that qualifier, what that caveat means? Yeah, so I felt I had to address all these macro issues that you pointed out are in the headlines. And then uh, I had an asterisk and it said, but they may not matter in the long term or they may not, right. may not matter very much. Right. And uh, part of the background for that is if you think about just over the last decade, every month or year, there are a number of things people are always worried about. And if I were to rattle through them, you know, it could be trade wars with China, it could be Eurozone crisis, could be, um, you know, reversal of the Fed's, uh, uh, what do you call it, the quantitative easing, that was a concern mm -hmm. for a while. So there's always something, you know, of the day, of the moment, of the month, and then kind of doesn't really matter after a while. And <laughs> you, you could have slept through the whole thing and, and been fine. So that's why I wanted to talk about those issues, but with that caveat, which is, you know, we're going to talk about them because they seem like they're important now. And that's what people are thinking about. Market prices in some cases have res responded to these concerns and are moving. So it's not something you can just completely ignore, mm -hmm. um, but they may not, they may not matter very much. And maybe that a year from now, we're talking about an entirely different set of concerns. I'd say of those th big three, the tax one is the one that concerns me the most because it's, there's the least, or I should say the fewer number of, es of places to escape. You know, if the, Fed raise, if the federal government raises capital gains right here in the US, there's not a lot of ways to get around that. I mean, yes, you have retirement assets, but outside of that, in your main non, your main taxable accounts, uh, you know, it's just not a lot of places to hide. So, uh, and that will, can directly impact the value of any business because it directly hits the amount of cash flow that's going to come out of it. Right. <clears throat> At least with the others, like inflation, most businesses can, or not, I shouldn't say most, but many can because they have some degree of pricing control or what, what they're doing. Uh, and you can argue that inflation is not, necessarily terrible all by its by itself because a lot of times you'll have higher rates of inflation because things will boom like so it might be hard to tell mm. which is what i think the case is right now hard to tell whether we have lasting inflation or whether it's just a kind of a temporary bump because everyone has so much money and we've had supply change disruptions because of covid and so you're seeing some effects of that so if you look at the jump in cpi for example you know, a big chunk of that increase was from travel-related 
cost items and also from used cars. So yeah, those are things that the market will eventually solve, right? Used cars are not going to go through the roof forever. <laughs> Believe me, the market will find ways to create more used cars. Uh, and I feel the same is true with a lot of the commodities. You know, are those real signals that there's inflation or is it just kind of a temporary, you know, supply disruption with something like lumber, for example? So, you know, time will, time will tell. I guess that's part of the, uh, the beauty of the, this kind of coffee can portfolio, or actually maybe this is the time to debut our uh, cicada or cicada portfolio idea. <laughs> yeah, so seven, 17 years, these cicadas come out of the ground and this is brood 10, as they call it. And uh, they're out in full force right now. So if I were to step out my door, you'd hear this little din of these, <laughs> you know, just bugs in the trees. They're just, they're loud and they're all over the place. So, uh, yeah, they, uh, that's their evolutionary survival mechanism. It's just kind of what they call, what do they call it? They call it predator satiation or something like that, where they just overwhelm their predators, get sick of them, (laughs) eat as many as you can, but there's still more. There's billions of these things. That's funny because I have a friend who has a dog and dog loves to go outside and now doesn't want to come in. It's like this, he wants to stay out chasing these bugs for him. It's probably like a world full of just chocolates flying around all of a sudden. He's like, What's going on? Like all these nasty, money. dumb bugs. And they are really dumb. These bugs. I mean, when you, you know, they don't fly away, you get close to them. They just stand there. So a lot of them get squished on sidewalks and they're just, they're just dumb Ugh, and goodness. they fly into you and then you can, you know, you grab them. I like to grab them by the behind their wings and you gently pull them off your shirt and they kind of kind of grab on for dear life and pull a little bit. And then they make this noise. They like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of, I just tossed it off and then you can see it fly away back into the trees. But yeah, I mean, I was at the driving range a week ago and I'd hit and, and one would just come and fly and hit me in his shirt and I'd pull it off. And then, you know, it seemed like a minute and a half later, another one would come and bang into me and it was, they were just all over. So That's super bizarre. So yeah, you had this idea. Phenomenon. Yeah, this is a bizarre creature. It's slowly bizarre. So it 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 goes. So these things they they hibernate for like seventeen years. They must have some like hyperphagia. They store up and then they just get in. Like, I don't know how it is, like a cocoon or something, or some kind of. Well, actually, um, they live as larvae underground. During oh, time. okay. They feed on the roots and of of uh, trees and eat you know different saps and things off trees and then yeah this 17 year cycle comes around and they come up out of the ground and you can see all these little holes where they emerge Mm. and uh then they do their mating and then they they last for about a they don't live very long i think this whole thing they start to die off at the end of the month and early july and then they'll be pretty much gone and then (laughs) and then and then we won't see them again till what 2038 i guess that's right yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of the idea, and it's not, it's not dissimilar to the coffee can um, idea that you and is it your friend Kevin that the, the both of you have this idea, or whose original was that? Well, the coffee can idea actually comes yeah, it comes from a guy named Robert Kirby who used to manage money, and he wrote an article called "The Coffee Can Portfolio" in 1984 okay. in the Journal of Portfolio Management. So he's the one who originally came up with it, and the you know the story of how he came up with it is kind of interesting because he. 
was managing money for this woman and she, you know, running her account and he would add things and sell things and trim. And every once he buys something new, and he was doing that for years and years. Uh, and then her husband dies and she gives him her husband's account. And then that's when Kirby finds out that unbeknownst to him, the husband has been piggybacking on his stock picks all this time, except <laughs> he made one difference, which is he never sold anything. Mm. And so, uh, he was shocked to see that, you know, there's several of these positions had gotten huge, including one position that was worth more than the entire account, the wife's account. And of course there were a number of stocks that had gone to zero or been disasters, but he used it as, but you know, ultimately this account outperformed what he was doing by quite a bit. And so he used it as kind of a way to re-examine what money managers do. You know, we're always looking to add to things and trim to this and, you, you know, just too much activity. And he, and he thought, well, here would have been better off had he just bought those things and left them alone. Mm. And he came up with the idea of the coffee can because in the old West, that's what people would bury their allegedly they would bury some of their valuables in a coffee can and then bury it or hide it. Forget about it basically. And so that's, he thought, well, what did a stock portfolio that was like that and left alone for a decade. You know, you picked, I forget in the article, he may have said pick 20 or 30 names, but when I wrote about it, I would say, you know, you pick 10 mm. and put them aside for 10 years and just see what happens, you know, let it, let it go. Yeah. And there's been a number of experiments with people doing that. And the results are very similar. To what Kirby saw you, one of those will wind up being a big winner that dominates the whole portfolio. A couple of them will be disasters and, you know, but it works out. Your overall return is probably better than if you had actively quote unquote managed the thing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not dissimilar, I guess, to the, <clears throat> whether it's the 17-year cicada portfolio or the coffee can yeah. portfolio. So a cicada or... portfolio would be a 17-year cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you trim out, you trim out a, lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, transaction fees and uh, a lot of slippage by just doing, yeah. as you, you quoted, um, Marty Whitman. If I were going to do it uh, that long, I would probably do it more with, uh, I, if I were going to do it that long, I'd probably do it more with ETFs and, you know, you just put like a certain amount in the S&P, a certain amount in the NASDAQ, maybe you, you have a couple other indexes because uh, 17 years is a really, really long time for any, yeah, you know, company, especially well, nowadays with disruption. Yeah, it's interesting too that I think uh, 17 years is probably not dissimilar to something like the average college fund, right? I mean, we've spoken about this before, but if you put money in when you're, you know, when your kid is in arms, baby in arms, then I think. Um, that's about the time that they start withdrawing it about seven years, 17 years later. Yeah. You know what? That's a good point. That's kind of, I, I already did that then in a way I had my own yeah. portfolio you because when I, my son was born, I started the 529 plan, as they call it and yeah. started putting money aside in that. And yes, 18 years later, there was enough money in there to pay for his college. Thankfully he went through state school. So it covered it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, there you go. 17 year portfolio in action. That's what it is. There, there it is. Somebody's got to rename a, a college, uh, college fund, the cicada fund. Um, so I was thinking as well that this is the, um, th this long perspective. And again, this was pretty similar with regards to Bill's trade of the decade is, is that it forces you to stop looking at that, um, you know, the daily noise and try and imagine whether it's the end of the decade or the end of some arbitrary period, 17 years or 
um, or what have you, you you have to kind of focus on what you think are maybe bigger um, trends, these kind of super cycles. And mm-hmm. you, you had touched on one of them um, in a recent blog post where uh, you mentioned something called price per employee and maybe that that is some some metric or some function of of what perhaps could be a sea change in the way that uh, companies operate uh you want to just mention what price per employee means and why it could potentially be part of uh of a much larger trend yeah so it was um we're looking at profit per employee. So this began by saying, by actually began with an email that Bill had sent around to us and you were on this mm-hmm. chain as well, but he had posed the question, well, who needs the physical world anymore? And we've got the internet, we've got blockchain, we've got Bitcoin, dot, dot, dot. And so ever since he said that, you know, I'd been thinking about it um, because I've kind of wondered it myself. And I had a company in the portfolio called Evolution Gaming. I still have it. And they, they're an online casino, basically. And they bought a business called Big Time Gaming that had 11 employees. And with, this, with these 11 employees, it had generated revenue of something like, let's say, 30, 33 million euros, I think is what it was. And they had a pre-tax profit of 29 million. So it's extraordinarily profitable. I mean, just stupidly profitable. I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, older businesses being that profitable. So, you know, you think about that. This is a business that barely has any physical presence whatsoever. I mean, 11, and in terms of human beings, 11 employees, it's not really consequential at all. And yet this was enormously profitable enterprise that was worth about, Evolution Gaming paid about 450 million euros for it. Uh, but that includes some earnouts and some other things, but that could be, that's like the max price. So, I, you know, I'm sure there are other extreme examples. That's what I put and I know people have other examples and I can think of some royalty companies that have maybe a dozen employees, but command a market cap of billions of dollars. And so it's not just tech, it can be a business model, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I started thinking about it and, and I was thinking that, that might be one real genuinely new thing in 21st century markets is that you have these businesses that are just extraordinarily profitable on a per employee basis. Uh, It's hard to imagine a business like evolution in the physical world. That's not seems, I mean, I'm sure there was somewhere somebody had a great business that worked similarly. And I bet it was also probably a royalty kind of deal. Somebody had done, something with, I mean, I know there's seismic data companies that can be very profitable on a per employee basis, or maybe somebody in like metal streaming who hit a home run and had a small office and have only less than you know, a dozen employees or so. But certainly it's not common. And now I say it's much more common. It's, you know, it's not, it's much more common to have a businesses like businesses like this. So I did a little research too on profit per, per employee. And I was a little bit surprised that uh, <laughs> there is some research and different data that people track on this, but I was surprised to find that the top two, at least uh, I think this was either just the S&P 500 or was some list of largest companies in the U.S., but the top two were government-sponsored enterprises. <laughs> they were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. <laughs> I thought that that was, that, I was not expecting that to be the answer. 
exactly. Me neither. But when, of course, when you are given the answer, you're like, well, of course, you know, yeah, massive yeah. subsidies, you know. <laughs> you don't usually look for it at, at GSEs as models of human efficiency. No, no. But uh, so how do you think, um, I mean, you mentioned that this is a trend for the 21st century. I think perhaps it's one that was um, accelerated by the events of the past year, just given the portion of the economy that was kind of forced into migrating to the extent that it could into the digital realm or the virtual realm. Um, so I'm, I was just thinking of companies, for example, my, um, you know, my wife runs a, a, um, a classical education um, website, classicalwisdom.com. And at the beginning of the pandemic or rather before, before it, you know, it's, it's fairly niche. And, and so she would have webinars and, you know, podcasts and things and, get a modest uh, attendance. But then when everybody was stuck at home and, you know, they were unable to go to college or attend in-person lectures, or maybe they were just bored and wanted to, um, you know, learn something new um, or contemplate life in a new way in the, um, you know, against the backdrop of an existential threat, you know, all of a sudden she was getting hundreds and sometimes thousands of people signing up to her webinars. And, wasn't as if she needed, you know, to have another 10 or 20 or a hundred staff. Um, you know, you have these programs, Zoom and the like, that now means that a large part of the conference business can migrate online with a huge increase in relative uh, profitability, just because you don't have to, you know, rent out hotels and you don't have to staff them and fly people places and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you expect we're going to see more of this this phenomenon? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's not, I don't think it's uh, that radical to say that the pandemic brought forward a lot of the development that was going online anyway, just accelerated, pushed on a lot of things. But then in the margin, there are other habits that changed and it went on long enough where I think those older habits, the, the newer habits, I should say, aren't just going to automatically flip back. So... Mm you have a lot of work that has just gone on without people actually having to physically travel places. So some business tra travel, I think is gone for good. It will just, people have worked around it and they've done it long enough now where they don't feel any compelling need necessarily to go back. Uh, not all business travel, of course, there'll be a good business travel rebound, but it, if you had a line on business travel, it just took a whole, you know, step down. Right. And, uh, I also think that I kind of wonder about other changes. Like I think the shine off a university degree is maybe, or the university experience has come off a little because again, you had these students doing a lot of things online and they're paying, still paying large tuition dollars for something that now is, you know, how do you distinguish that from, some of the free coursework that's out there that you can do or paid online courses that are substantially cheaper, but you know, the experience is not very different. So uh, you know, how much of the university is going to be disrupted or changed by this trend too? I wonder about that. Yeah. It seems like part of the ability of universities to command these uh, stratospheric tuition fees was the fact that you got to go to these old IV colored or covered, uh, you know, buildings and attend, um, you know, keg parties 
and indulge in all kinds of college dorm room traditions. But once you take that away, um, the the education that they right. gave didn't didn't seem to justify the price tag, <laughs> perhaps. Right. And, you know, mentioned the online casino company. That was one where you definitely got a surge last year. But what's interesting is that's still holding. It's not like they had mm. this big bump and now things are opening up and they're going back down. Those gains are holding, which tells me that those habits have, have stuck, that enough people have decided, you know what, <laughs> this is not bad. I can play... <laughs> you know, black or whatever from my computer and I, I can get all the drinks I want here. I don't have to pay, I don't have to dress up. I don't have to pay. <laughs> don't, have to, don't have to get out of my underwear. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, even in restaurants, of course, there's some restaurants were, let's say, much more equipped to deal with this change than others. So say somebody like a Domino's Pizza, they already had their own app. They're already taking on quite a bit of online business and they don't really depend on in-person dining. So, you know, Domino's thrived during the pandemic where even another pizza business where they do depend more on in-person dining suffered greatly. Um, well, that's another trend I think might, might stick. You know, they're seeing the proliferation of food delivery companies, which I don't necessarily understand yet. <laughs> I think yeah. it might be a generational thing. I, you know, yeah, I was. I don't know if you talking, have experience with using food delivery. Yeah, absolutely. I was. I was just talking with somebody about this the other day. There's a um, there's a company in South America called Rappi, and it's a unicorn, one of these unicorn companies. But the pandemic treated them very well because um, they had. I think they were. I think they began. I, I want to say Colombia, but they've since expanded all over Latin America. They keep getting calls to come up and enter the U.S. market, but they're <laughs> they're reticent. They're like, no, no, we've we've got our market. We know what we're doing here. We're we're fine, thanks. But um, yeah. yeah, they they had um, they just exploded during this time, and and part of it was um, there's been a few articles written about this, but part of it was the fact that there is an enormous Venezuelan uh, diaspora that has during the same course of you know, a year or two, let's say, has spread out, you know, from the top to the bottom of South America, uh, Latin, Spanish-speaking America, uh, South America. So you have this huge workforce, I think something like 5 million Venezuelans have um, have expatriated, probably some of them for good. Uh, so down in Argentina, pretty much, you know, if, if you order food online or through this Rappi app, uh, there's a Venezuelan that's that's going to be delivering it to you, and what it <clears throat> what it meant was that um, it was it was a soft landing for or, or a softer landing, I should say, for people who you know arrived in a new country just with their shirt on their back and you know nothing really nothing really else going for them. They were able to. I mean, I've seen guys you know renting those um, those bicycles, you know, like a bank, but like an Itau bicycle or whatever. And they'll rent that until they can make enough money delivering food on Rappi that they can buy their own bicycle. And then they might get a couple of guys going in together and they just build up this little, this little business. But um, yeah, it was something also whereby the existing restaurants um, and existing employees didn't feel threatened because it was a new 
uh, a new phenomenon, kind of an extension of already existing businesses. So when all these employees came in, um, they were they were greeted as as additional arms of of existing businesses rather than threatening to you know push them out of business. So that was an interesting kind of phenomenon that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly in Latin America during the last year. So yeah, I would say up here, uh, I see different sides of it. So during the pandemic, restaurants did use these delivery companies, but the delivery companies also take quite a bit, uh, you know, bite out of the whole of the um, restaurant as well. Mm. So uh, you know, as a temporary measure to bring in revenue, I think uh, they're probably happy to have it. But uh, I have also seen. Uh, and I saw one the other day, a sign on the outside of a restaurant saying, we don't use delivery apps. <laughs> so, oh, okay. you know, you, you order and you come get it or they're, they're not going to, they're not, they're not allowing these other Uber Eats and other companies like that to come in because, uh, you know, there, there's a cost for being on the platform. So I, I guess, you know, I, I see uh, both ways. On the one hand, it creates a middleman that so has to get paid somehow. Yep. And then as a business, it could be somewhat threatening because uh, as a restaurant, if you start getting large chunks of your business from these apps, you're kind of uh, suddenly are working for them for better or for worse. Right. That's why I think a restaurant <clears throat> where they're in control of the entire operation might be well-placed in that kind of competitive world. So Domino's has their own delivery their own app and they capture the, you know, everything. They have the customer experience from beginning to end. And they yeah. also have a product that's easy to move. Right. Um, and they can, um, they can control the quality uh, to an extent of, of the deliverable. Um, right. You know, but, and then I think sometimes also there are, it, it might be one of those instances where it's opening up a kind of a new little sort of sub niche of, of restaurants mm-hmm. where, there's a there's a name for this I forget it but it's it's um it's essentially a kitchen that just makes um you know to order um yeah dark or, or to go food dark kitchens that's that's the thing yeah. so I I can't remember those happening beforehand I remember right. like closed door restaurants and things but this seems to be a new new phenomenon right I agree yeah. so those are the big ones I mean travel you know restaurants kind of how people even spend time online. This whole pandemic also has changed the way I think about the portfolio because I don't think this is the last time we're going to go through this. Right. I think I think it's going to happen again. So it's almost like, yeah, underwriting a new risk. So I have to think about, well, how's this company going to operate if that should happen again? It is something I've asked myself. And, and that's, so, you know, that's interesting. Real impact. Yeah, that's interesting because I wanted to ask you about um, about how you might factor this into. I know you run a, a, a pretty tight ship with your portfolio. I think eleven names uh, you mentioned. So, right. and then it, is it a rule that when you when you bring on uh, a new company or find a new opportunity, you you make room for it? Uh, by selling another, like, do you, ha- is it specifically 11 that you've settled on or is it just some, somewhere pretty close to that? Yeah, I originally had thought uh, 10 <clears throat> to 12 and sometimes things happen. So I was down to 10 and then one of my companies had a spinoff. So that's what gave me the 11, the odd number uh, 11. <laughs> okay. I was and thinking that's quite so specific. 
<laughs> Did he pick 11? No, so some kind of magic to 11. Yeah, no, yeah. 12, 12 is a disaster. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got a, a spinoff and I really like the spinoff. And so I bought more of the spinoff and yeah, so now I have 11 and uh, I did have 12 because I did have another situation where there was a holding company and then I also owned its largest investment. And then I made a switch where I just put it all into the main hold co. So then that got me, you know, so it's kind of bounces around at the margin sometimes because these mm-hmm. kinds of things can happen. But I usually say in my mind something like 10 to 12 and I just kind of run right now. I have 11 and that's the number. And yep. if I want to buy something, I would have to sell something to yeah, make room for that new name. Now it might be that, you know, I have 11 names for a while and something gets bought out or I sell it for some other reason. And then I'm back down to 10, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah. in general, yeah, if I'm going to add something right now, I'd have to get rid of something. Yeah. I kind of think about that as, I mean, a loose metaphor when, when I travel for extended periods of time and I mean like six months or longer, I, I have a, a, and aversion to baggage carousels. I've just had too many bad experiences. And so I travel with carry on only. And for six months, that's, you know, that's a pretty minimalist, um, minimalist luggage. And uh, to her credit, my wife is also uh, amazingly able to accomplish that. They generally travel with, um, or get lots of hate mail for (laughs) saying that women generally travel with more luggage than men. (laughs) But, um, but it did happen that, As you're traveling along, if you want to, you know, if you want to buy a souvenir or a knickknack or, you know, go clothes shopping or whatever, you've only got this limited space. And so it puts a, a real yeah. value threshold on, you know, if you're going to have to throw something out or make room, then the new thing that you're putting in there has to be at least as good or as valuable as the last thing. So I guess in a similar way with your portfolio, if you're going to, it, it sets up a very high bar of entry if you're looking at, um, you know, a new company satisfying the kinds of things that you look at before you add something to your, to your portfolio to replace one of those other names. That's exactly right. And that's a good analogy too, because it kind of serves the same function because otherwise you get a portfolio where you just accumulated and picked up a lot of knickknack stuff, <laughs> you know, Oh, that's <laughs> right. interesting. I'll buy a little of that. Oh, that sounds interesting. I'll buy a little of that. And then, right. <laughs> you know, you just got all this junk. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I I find it to be a great discipline to keep that bar really high. That sounds like uh, like a variation on Parkinson's law. You know, the uh, work expands to fill the time (laughs) allotted to it (laughs) or the, the, the ladies, the ladies handbag, right. Uh, However big it is, that's how much stuff they're carrying (laughs) full to the brim. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And with investing, there's another dynamic in that, you know, you only have so much capital. And, you know, for me, uh, I think about not only do I want to make sure what I, what I want to pick is good, I, I means I also have to get rid of something. So that creates another risk on the other side. I could get rid of the wrong thing. You know, I could make the wrong move. Uh, yeah. I could buy something and be wrong about the buying and then sell something and be wrong about the selling. And, and there's taxes. So, you know, you ideally the way I like to run the portfolio is very tax efficient and you, you know, you don't want to touch it too much. I don't want to be in there making these little marginal trades all the time. So do you have uh, any kind of, <clears throat> any kind of 
mental trick for uh, for resisting any emotional urges that that people suffer to either either panic sell or FOMO uh, on you know when things are steaming ahead. Right. Well, one of the things on a daily basis I like is you, you don't log in on those days where you where you feel the urge to do something. You always let it always let it cool. You know, don't make any decisions in the heat of the moment. Um, oh yeah, like like a, wait till the market closes and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Wait till the market closes and then at least give yourself a day to sleep on it. I mean, I found because I research ideas all the time and then I'll get excited about something and I'll keep reading and I think it gets better and better. I get all excited about it. But what I find is if I let it sit for a little while and it kind of goes away, <laughs> that itch, mm. it's almost like, um, you know, like if you see something, you really want it. I don't know, say it's a piece of clothing shirt or I don't know what it is or some book that you think you definitely want to read. But if you let it sit for a week, and and then no 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 the kind of desire goes away on its own it seems less important somehow and if it does still stick around you can go ahead and you know then you go ahead and do it but um so that's one little mental trick is oh it's just, just give myself time myself you know the market will be here tomorrow will be here next week will be here the week after that the month after that the year right, after that right. <laughs> and i think about all the times in my experience where it seemed really critical and urgent that i do something you know or i had to yeah. get this or i have to sell this or and it's almost never, 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 never the case. You have lots of time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Always, always good catching up. And uh, yeah, there's lots of interesting things going on. I'm sure we'll, we'll speak again. Indeed. Okay, mate. Good to talk to you and we'll chat again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.